30 seconds, reality as you know it will cease to exist. In its place, you will find a new dimension, identical to the one you left behind, only slightly better. Take a deep breath and open your mind to the magic within you. This is no ordinary podcast. This podcast is with Richard If you want to change the world, first, change your mind. Everything we do starts as an idea. Whether it's reaching out to grab a glass of water or moving across the country to go to law school, all of our actions start as ideas bubbling up in our brains. Some of these ideas are unconscious or become actions so quickly that all we perceive is putting out our hand to stop ourselves from falling rather than consciously thinking, hmm, I should probably put out my hand in the next couple milliseconds or I'm going to fall. And of course, the processes by which ideas become actions and actions become changes in our larger reality differ greatly, depending on the specific idea, the elements within our control, and the time it takes to produce the desired change. Once upon a time, I had a very strange idea. I thought it would be fun to become a wizard. While most people know what a wizard is, having read Harry Potter or watched Lord of the Rings, very few people actually exist in our world as wizards. And to be truly seen as doing something in our capitalist materialist world, you need to do it full-time, for a living. Anything else and it's dismissed as a mere hobby, but when you make money at it, that's when people stop and say, oh hey, you're really doing it. When I decided to take action on this strange idea of becoming a 21st century wizard, I knew it would take time to reach the point where I could do it full-time. I also didn't want to compromise the beauty and magic of the idea by immediately trying to push it to profitability. So I worked a day job and used my nights, weekends, and whatever spare hours I could steal on the clock to bring my wizardry into being. While I worked, I sought to explore and better understand what it means to be a wizard. I knew there were many things that wizards in fantasy and fiction could do that were going to be beyond my abilities. Summoning dragons and shooting fireballs and the like. But I wanted to fulfill the core responsibility of every wizard, which is being a vessel of magic in this world. And over time, I realized that the most powerful magic met people where they were at. It worked with the ideas, images, and archetypes that lurked in their unique brain and helped them expand their imagination into an experience of the world rich with potential and possibilities. I found that magic in hypnosis. I'd been intrigued by hypnosis since I was a kid, when a doctor referred me to a hypnotist to treat a recurring wart on my elbow. As an adult, I read books and took workshops and studied and practiced and became more and more amazed by the power of the human imagination to take suggestions and create profound experiences out of them. Last week, I quit my day job. And today, I'm launching a new business, a new way for me to bring wizardry into the modern world as a hypnotherapist and full-time wizard. My new business is called Change Your Mind, 
and you can book a session with me at changeyourmindky.com. It's very easy to do remote hypnosis, so we can do a session for you anywhere in the world. I chose the name Change Your Mind because while the world around us is filled with unfathomable complexity and forces beyond our control, there is always something we can do to change our own minds. This truth is at the heart of magic and hypnosis. And today, as this ritual ushers in a new chapter of my own life, I invite you to join me for a journey into the strange parallels between hypnosis and magic as we discover together how to change your mind. My favorite definition of the occult is that which is hidden or obscure. I consider hypnosis an occult art because it explores precisely those hidden, obscure elements in our own minds. The ones that have us picking up a cigarette moments after we swore we'd quit, or lashing out a loved one when, well, when we don't really know why. Why do we do the things we do? What strange powers lurk beneath the conscious surface of the human mind? Our faulty sense of, I did this because I decided to do it. How do we even decide the things we think we decided to do? A moment ago, I gave a definition of the occult, rather than one of hypnosis, because hypnosis is really hard to define. That's why I find it fascinating. Hypnosis rests in that hidden, obscure, shadowy realm where we know we can do things and get certain results, but we don't fully understand the mechanisms which achieve those results. It's a lot like magic in that way. The history of hypnosis is a history of false theories and strange phenomena. Many of the initial ideas about what hypnosis is and why it works were disproven, but the strange phenomena has persisted. Over time, we've learned that the mind appears to enter a mysterious state, commonly called trance, where the imagination is more powerful and the unconscious more accessible. In that state, people can forget their own name, experience vivid hallucinations, and create powerful lasting changes in their own personality. My own thesis, which I'll be expounding in this episode, is that hypnosis is a still unknown process that allows us to interact with the hidden forces within us, while magic is a still unknown process that allows us to interact with the hidden forces around us. While everyone knows the hermetic maxim, as above, so below, most people leave off the crucial second half, as within, so without. Within and without, we are surrounded by shadows and strange phenomena. Without knowing precisely how they work, we use the tools and techniques of magic and hypnosis to engage with these hidden forces, translating ideas into actions and actions into changes we perceive in the world around us as well as deep within our own being. To better understand these ideas, and perhaps our own minds, I'll guide us through a history of hypnosis in three parts. We'll be looking at the work of Franz Anton Mesmer, James Braid, and Milton H. Erickson, three pioneers of hypnosis who also represent three unique approaches to understanding where the magic of hypnosis rests whether that's in the hands of the hypnotist, the mind of the subject, or somewhere in between. 
Part 1. Animal Magnetism Born in the village of Isnang in southern Germany in 1734, Franz Mesmer went on to study medicine with the Jesuits and became a doctor in Vienna. In 1774, while treating a patient for hysteria, he had her drink a solution containing iron and then placed magnets around her body so as to create an artificial tide. When the patient got better a few hours later, Mesmer decided that it wasn't the magnets alone that had cured her, but some form of innate animal magnetism generated by her own body. Mesmer continued to explore this theory, and after moving to Paris, wrote a book, Mesmerism, The Discovery of Animal Magnetism, outlining his theories about how this invisible fluid moves through channels in the human body, and that by removing obstacles and restoring flow, optimal health can be achieved. Now, there's a lot of interesting parallels between Mesmer's animal magnetism and other energy system theories like chi or prana. Acupuncture, which is now common throughout the United States, is a system of redirecting energy through different channels in the body using thin needles. Over the course of his career, Mesmer's methods of generating and controlling this animal magnetism evolved. He thought of it as an actual fluid and would treat individuals and groups by pressing their thumbs, staring intently into their eyes, and making passes by moving his hands repeatedly in front of their face or down the length of their body. Eventually, Mesmer created a device called a baquette, which was a big wooden bucket filled with water that Mesmer would cover with a lid full of holes and then stick iron rods into it. The iron rods were bent like straws, and Mesmer's patients would sit around the baquette holding the iron rods or pointing them at various parts of their body, and that's how the animal magnetism would be harnessed and the healing performed. Now, a lot of this stuff is very silly nonsense that preyed upon the desire for wellness and thirst for novelty common among the idle rich. Back then... It was bored aristocrats sitting around a wet bucket of iron rods. Now it's a three-day healing weekend of yoni eggs and Tibetan singing bowls for bored housewives in Los Angeles. But, whereas many contemporary proponents of nonsense New Age treatments seemed to be openly engaged in a grift, it was clear that Mesmer truly believed in the force he'd discovered and its power to heal. Animal magnetism supposedly existed in his patients, but it was Mesmer who possessed the ability to conjure and control it. This gives us the image of the charismatic hypnotist with mysterious powers, repeating, look into my eyes over and over, as his subjects fall helplessly under his spell. It's a hypnotic archetype that would outlive Mesmer and lead to Svengali, a character from an 1894 novel who seduced, dominated, and exploited the fragile female mind. In the early 20th century, Many hypnotic entertainers played up this angle, wearing turbans and announcing that the audience was powerless to resist their hypnotic commands. It makes for good entertainment, but it places all the power in the hands of the hypnotist and renders the subject as nothing more than a passive pawn. Good for gurus, much less useful for people looking to understand how hypnosis is actually experienced by the subject. The other lasting impact of Mesmer's career in animal magnetism centered on one of his students, Charles d'Eslam. In 1784, 
King Louis XVI appointed a committee to investigate this so-called animal magnetism as practiced by Deslan. Among the assembled investigators was the American statesman Benjamin Franklin. The commission performed a series of experiments aimed not at determining whether Mesmer's treatment worked, but whether he had discovered a new physical fluid. They, of course, found no fluid, and a disgraced Mesmer left Paris in exile, which was probably for the best, since the French Revolution was right around the corner, and Mesmer was basically Dr. Oz with iron rods for the soon-to-be-guillotine set. But I digress. What's fascinating to me about Mesmer is that he discovered something real, but got what it was very wrong. And when the so-called scientific establishment sent out to investigate, they did it in the most literal terms possible. When they couldn't find any physical fluid, they called it a day, completely ignoring the real results Mesmer and Deslan were obtaining. The main discovery of the committee was that mesmerism only worked when the subject was aware it was happening. If you hid behind a curtain and pointed wet iron rods at someone, they didn't experience the effects. This is one of the first known observations of the placebo effect. But Benjamin Franklin and his crew threw the baby out with the baquette water. It would take a few more years and a Scottish surgeon by the name of James Braid to move past mesmerism and realize that trance was induced not by magnets, but the human mind. Part 2. And sleep. Despite Mesmer's debunking, animal magnetism continued to have fans even into the 19th century. In 1841, James Braid attended several demonstrations of one such remaining mesmerist, Charles LaFontaine. Braid had already read up on the subject and was thoroughly convinced there was no magnetism at play, but what he saw in LaFontaine's demonstrations also convinced him that something unusual was indeed happening. Braid's big innovation was rejecting the idea of mesmerism as an operator-subject interaction, that is, the hypnotist doing something to the hypnotee, but rather as a subject-internal, operator-guided procedure. To test this, Braid attempted to hypnotize himself, with no external hypnotist present, and was quite successful. He went on to introduce several important shifts in our thinking around hypnosis. First, he introduced the term hypnotism itself, calling the condition a form of nervous sleep and drawing the name from Hypnos, the Greek god of sleep. Second, Braid shook off the mysterious forces of mesmerism and developed methods of induction by which no physical contact or wet iron rods were required. Subjects were asked to focus on a small object held above their head, something like the now iconic swinging watch, and then were guided into this sleep-like state of trance. This ushered in a new era of hypnosis research and application. Braid himself experimented with hypnosis for anesthesia, which was very successful, but soon replaced by chemical anesthesia because, come on, what Western doctor doesn't want more chemicals? The other outgrowth of Braid's recentering of the hypnotic subject was a new approach to the academic study of hypnosis. In this new model, the subject was all important and the hypnotist little more than a hired guide. Research was done by writing a standardized script and then having 
some TA read it in a monotone voice, or better yet, playing a recording of some TA reading the script, so the variables introduced by the hypnotist could be minimized and the science could focus solely on the subject. What these studies found was that 15% of the population was highly susceptible to hypnosis, 65% were moderately susceptible, and 25% weren't susceptible at all. In this view, hypnotizability is a personal trait, and basically, you either got it or you ain't. In exploring the emerging phenomenon of hypnosis, it's interesting to see two forms of bias and error be introduced. With Mesmer, we had strange superstitions about magnets and mysterious fluids that turned out to be false. But then with the new academic objective study, the scientists working so hard to remove bias introduced another bias. They discarded the unique interactions between the hypnotist and the hypnotee. Since everything happened in the mind of the subject, a hypnotist was little more than a script reader. And if that scientific approach didn't work for someone, well, they were just a lost cause, weren't they? With some data sets, you can ignore the outliers. But with other data sets, the outliers are everything. And it would take another hundred years for a wheelchair-bound family therapy psychologist operating out of Phoenix, Arizona, to show us precisely what a hypnotist contributes to the hypnotic experience. Part 3. The Wizard of the Desert Born in 1901, Milton H. Erickson was the second youngest of nine children. Colorblind, tone-deaf, and dyslexic, Erickson was stricken by polio at age 17 and had to relearn how to walk after being paralyzed. And yet, it is not despite these obstacles that Erickson made a seismic impact in the field of hypnosis, but because of them. Due to his disabilities and temporary paralysis, Erickson spent a tremendous amount of time observing people and trying to understand what was happening in their experience that was not happening in his. Having used self-hypnosis during his own recovery from polio, Erickson explored it with his psychology patients and noticed something new. Whereas it was previously believed that certain people were hypnotizable and others weren't, Erickson realized that everyone was hypnotizable in their own way. What worked for one person wouldn't necessarily work for another. And what one person could do easily in trance, another deeply entranced person might find difficult or impossible. Erickson learned to apply a flexible approach to hypnosis, ditching rigid scripts in favor of careful observation of the subject while trying new things and adapting to their responses. While swinging watches and rotating spirals are actually effective means of inducing trance, they're by no means necessary. Instead, all that's required is an attentive guide who can help the subject direct their attention inward, focusing on their innate ability to relax, to imagine, and to let their unconscious express itself. Erickson had a number of core principles, and my favorites are the idea that everyone is unique and everyone already has the resources they need to solve their problem. It's not about the therapist handing you a golden ticket, but learning how to get in touch with your whole self and work with the unconscious parts that have been pursuing poorly adapted strategies. 
there are several flavors of therapy that present the idea of parts, distinct internal pieces of our psyche that interact with each other, some in ways we're aware of and others in ways we're not. One popular framework called internal family systems therapy uses the metaphor of a bus. We are all buses and have many riders on board. But no one gets off our bus. So to heal and operate effectively, we need to understand everyone riding our bus, all of our internal parts, and help them work together. That part that gets too drunk, or jealous, or angry, needs understanding, attention, and purpose. And if we can provide that, we can curb problem behaviors and access greater self-awareness and love. This is the framework that drew me to hypnosis and magic. If we can look at the world and appreciate that even our so-called enemies, whether they be annoying neighbors or those idiots on the other end of the political spectrum, are all operating in the way that makes sense for them, that greater empathy can help us move more effectively through the world. Similarly, if we keep trying to do something only to sabotage ourselves again and again, instead of letting our inner critic chew us out, we can seek to learn where this saboteur lives in our mind and what they're after so we can help them help us heal and change. In both cases, we're dealing with the occult, the hidden forces whose motives and machinations we don't fully understand. And it seems only fitting that the tools we use to work with these forces are similarly shadowy. While I believe hypnosis is neither animal magnetism nor a strange form of sleep, I'm sure we'll have new theories that replace Erickson's model of cooperative conversation. But the meta model I find helpful is that it's all a game. There are no rules, and the rules are always changing. That's why I don't really mess around with established magical systems. One person's Wicca is another's bent iron rods. And I think to work real effective magic, you have to embrace your uniqueness, get in touch with your parts, and seek out those hidden forces in the world around you. So when it comes to hypnosis and magic, here's what I believe. The power is not in the prophet or the guru or the charismatic leader. The power is not in the mind of the individual subject. The power exists in the connections between people. A priest is powerless without a congregation, but a tribe can't work their magic without a shaman. When we see ourselves as isolated, atomized individuals, single units of being, we struggle. We struggle with the world around us, and we struggle with the world within us. But when we embrace the principles of hypnosis and begin to appreciate that we live in an occult world with many hidden forces lurking behind the curtains of our mind, the veiled borders of what we take to be reality, when we learn how to work with these powers rather than against them, we can create greater harmony, increase our options, and learn more about the worlds within and without. And all I can say is that it's worked for me. Once upon a time, I had an idea. Today, it's a reality. And if you want to learn more about the powers of hypnosis firsthand, visit changeyourmindky.com and I'll be happy to give you a session so you can experience this powerful magic for yourself. But 
if you take nothing else away from this episode, please remember one thing. If you want to change the world, first, change your mind. <laughs>